So we're looking at Romans 5, and I wanted to read verse 10 this morning, and I want to talk to you about being saved by the life of Jesus. Um, we have a lot of information. We talk a lot about the death of Jesus, but I want, to, I want to spend some time focusing upon his resurrected life and what that means to us. And verse 10 tells us something very powerful. It says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, there's something much more to occur now, and that is being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so this is very important because I think a lot of times as believers and what I hear in believers as they're expressing things about their life and their faith it seems as though they kind of get stuck in the grave. You know, we don't like to see Jesus on the cross anymore because we know that's not where he is, right? He's not on the cross and he's not being perpetually crucified for our sins. He died once and for all. So when we see a, a crucifix or something with Jesus on it, we don't like that because we say he's not there. But I also want to say to you as believers, he's not in the grave either. And, um, and we need to live as though he's alive because his life means a lot for you. And you need to know this. And I just pray through the things we're going to study that it will help you have great confidence in the life of Jesus. And so when you look at this in verse 10, how much more shall we be saved by his life? Then I want to talk about that word saved. And this is what it means. The word saved there means to save, to keep safe and sound. To rescue from danger or destruction. To save a suffering one who's been reconciled from perishing, from suffering, from disease. To make them well, to heal them, to make them whole. That is what the saving life of Jesus should be doing in your life. Christians today are battling with depression, discouragement, despair, disease, sickness, all types of illness, all types of frustrations, mental anguish, um, just grief stricken, everything, because they believe in the death of Jesus, but they are not taking advantage of the life of Jesus. And the Bible says, you know, we perish through a lack of knowledge. And it's through ignorance of that. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And so I want you to understand the power of his life. Not to take anything away from his death, but he is alive. And his grave is empty. And so if the life of Jesus is to save you, to rescue you, to keep you from perishing, to heal you, to restore you, to deliver you... To keep you from suffering that brings despair. If his life is to do that, how does it become operative in you? So that you actually have this testimony in your life. Now I want to take a moment and just look at the death of Jesus. Because the death of Jesus indeed reconciled us to God. We were the enemies of God. It wasn't the fact that we were just held hostage against our will from God, but we were his enemies. We hated him and we despised him. And the world does that today. The world hates God. They despise God. It's really interesting. We were out in some of the areas yesterday witnessing, and I was just watching as we were sharing tracts and gospels with college students, and they would 
read it and then just laugh and mock as they were walking away. Not everybody did that, but a few of them did that. And when they did that, I, I could only remember seeing yesterday some videos from a concert at Astroworld this recently where eight people died, 300 were hospitalized, and they went to the concert of this rapper, and the whole stage was a scene of hell. It was like the gate of hell. And they had a dove that was lit on fire um, to represent defaming the Holy Spirit. And they had an upside-down cross, and, and the theme was, I'll meet you on the other side. And eight people died, an eight-year-old died. Um, people were injured, and, and I'm just thinking, you know, here are these people in this, in this worship service for Satan, trying to get as close to the stage as they can, that they literally kill people. But they're excited about their God, you know, and this is their life. They hate God. They are enemies of God. And so it is it is something to understand. We also at one time in our life were like that. We did not want God. We did not like God. And we were enemies of God. We were the enemies of everything that was good. We would laugh and mock the things of God as well. We would not enter into the things of God as well. But Jesus, not when we were turning over a new leaf or bettering ourselves or, you know, coming to our senses that, wait a minute, I'm doing this against God. No, it wasn't in that moment. But when we were his enemies... Then he reconciled us by his death. God did something marvelous. He demonstrated his love for us. And he saved us in his death. And he reconciled us to God, which is to join the relationship back in a relationship that is mutually agreeable, that is favorable, that is a delight, that is, that is intimate, and it is, there's no adversity in it. And that is the reconciliation that God brought for us through Jesus Christ. God did not just reconcile you through the death of Jesus so that you could go to heaven one day. But God reconciled you through the death of Jesus so that you would literally become his temple. And he would be able to live in you. You would be the place of divine action of God in the earth. In other words, your life was to be an expression that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. That's what your life is supposed to be. That's what the church is supposed to be. A demonstration of the kingdom of God. And I, I want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I just want you to see this for just a moment. Because he tells us this in verse 19. He says that to wit that God was in Christ. So the Father was living in the Son reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So the Father was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself through his Son. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And so now it's like Christ is in us and he is able to beseech the world through us as ambassadors for other people to be reconciled to God. Because they're his enemies and there is a natural enmity with them towards God. And so what do they need? They need people to go into their life 
and tell these people, God is not your enemy. But the one you've joined yourself to is your real enemy, and that is Satan. And Hebrews 2 says that Jesus destroyed the power of Satan so that men could be free. But we have to be those ambassadors to do that. How will they call off somebody they, they don't know about? And how will they know about him if there's no preacher? So all of you are preachers, and we need to be telling people about Jesus Christ. But this is what we are, and it was the divine intention of God to indwell those that he would reconcile to himself. He wants to live in us. And it was very clear, even by Jesus' own teachings, that it was expedient for him to leave this world. And why was it expedient for him to leave? Exciting and necessary for him to leave. And that is so the Holy Spirit could come. And why is this better than Jesus being here? Why is it better for Jesus to be away rather than be here so the Holy Spirit could come? And it's for this fundamental thing. So that Jesus could then be in you. In you. Now we agree and we nod and we say amen to that. But how few Christians are actually living by the power of his life? But yet the Holy Spirit has come to live in us. And that was the desire of God. The Holy Spirit is sameness as Jesus. Sameness. He's not an influence or a force or impersonal. He is the third person of the Godhead. He is just like Jesus. And he has come in the name of Jesus to indwell us. And so it is just as Jesus indwelling you. For Jesus said, I'm leaving you, but I'm also coming back to you. And they said, how are you going to do this? And he said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, another one just like me. And so I want to read something to you. There is one person of the Father and another of the Son and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory is equal. And the majesty is co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. As there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensibles, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Ghost is almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God. The Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost is Lord. But there are not three lords, but one Lord. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. And if some of you are thinking that Jesus said the Father is greater than I, he was speaking of it in terms of his humanity, not his deity. 
But the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, in unity and trinity, and the trinity in unity is to be worshipped. The scripture says he's God, the Holy Ghost, and gives to the Holy Ghost the attributes that belong to God and the Son and the Father. For instance, Psalms 139 says, Whither shall I go from your spirit, or whither shall I flee from your presence? That is omnipresence. Not even the devil is omnipresent. Only God can claim omnipresence. But the Psalms attributes to the Holy Ghost omnipresence. And there in Job, he is given the power to create. By his spirit, he hath garnished the heavens. His hand has formed the crooked serpent. And he said, the spirit of God hath made me and the breath of the almighty has given me life. There we have the breath, the gas, the ghost, the spirit of the almighty has given me life. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is said to be creator. He issues commands, thus saith the spirit. And only God can do that. And there is the baptismal command. I baptize you in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Ghost. Into the deep of their spirit, there the Holy Spirit would live and there the Holy Spirit would teach them and lead them, making them holy and giving them power. Jesus taught that all the way through his life to his disciples of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He told them that there was coming a new and superior kind of life that would be imparted to man. You have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God, that you might know the things of God. The Holy Spirit is the expression of revealed truth and the secret of divine power. The spirit of God dwells in the spirit of man. He quickens, directs, and controls, and even sanctifies the whole man. The Holy Spirit is not a force, an influence, a feeling, enthusiasm, joy, or power. He is God. He has feelings. He can be loved. He can rejoice. He can comfort. He can teach. He can be grieved. He can be quenched. And he can be withstood. And so we must be very careful with this great gift that Jesus has given to those who have been reconciled to him. And that is the Holy Spirit. And yet so many people today do not understand the spirit-filled life. Or understand the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. We oftentimes go back to a time in our past. And claim an experience that we had with God in the person of the Holy Spirit. On this day I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke with tongues. Great. What has that done for you? Where is the evidence of that life in you? That power in you? The influence of God? Can you lift your hands and worship? Can you even do that? Can you pray? Can you pray for any quality of time before God and intercede and gain from the throne of heaven? Because the Holy Spirit is empowering you in your life. What difference has the Holy Spirit made in your life? What change has been wrought? What sanctification has come by the life of Christ? Not by your effort to look godly. Not by your effort to do religious calisthenics. But the actual life of God in you, how has that affected you? 
Because if you've been reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now being reconciled will you be saved by His life. Will you be rescued? Will you be blessed? Will you escape sickness and disease and perishing? Or you won't be confined to that rule over your life. And what does that mean? You know, what does that mean? That because He's my life that I won't ever be sick? That I won't ever have a disease? No, it doesn't mean that. It means the sickness or the disease or the pandemic will never rule your life. The spirit of life will, but not that. I had this in my body. I, was, I had arthritis for over 10 years in my body. I could hardly move. I was in excruciating pain to walk, and God was sending me all over the world. And it was excruciating to, to travel and to do that and to get stove up on a 14-hour flight nonstop. And then to have to get up and get off of that plane where your body was just cramping in pain. And I didn't want to do it, but I just knew in the name of Jesus Christ and by the life of God, arthritis will not tell me what I can and cannot do for God. God will dictate that. Not my sickness, not my limitation, not my disease. God. God will do that. Those of you that are elderly and your, your eyesight's tough and you have a hard time driving at night, don't let your eyesight dictate what you will or will not do with God. God dictates that, not your physical condition or else we live by that or whatever it might be, young people, whatever it might be in your life that, you know, I want to live right now for these things in my life and one day I'll live for God. No, God dictates your life. But so rarely do you find people actually living in this quality of Jesus' life. The death of Jesus is incredible. It is absolutely incredible. In his death, we're reconciled to God. We who were once sinners and enemies of God. We have been brought back to God into relationship with him. Not just simply as friends or servants or doorkeepers. But literally the sons and daughters of God. And get this. We have been made kings and priests unto God. That is, that is our calling in our ministry. He bore our sins in his own body and took them away. Praise God. He took them away guys. That's why you're reconciled to God. God doesn't see you as an enemy. You're righteous. That means you stand before God as though you've never done anything wrong. As though you were never his enemy. That's what the death of Jesus has done for you. He has fully satisfied God's wrath for you. You will never come under God's wrath ever. Because it was completely poured out on his son. He would not do this again when it was done once and for all. And Colossians says that your body of sin was circumcised, cut off from you, and nailed with Jesus on the cross. And so it wasn't the fact that Jesus was just your substitute on the cross, but somehow in the mystery of God and in the wisdom of God and in the divine knowledge of God, he was able to remove from you your body of sin and attach it to the cross of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died, you died. You didn't get away with anything. You completely paid for everything. Colossians says that by his flesh being cut open, your body of sin was cut off. And nailed with him. So it's over. It's done. All of the sin. All of the wrath. All of the injustice. Everything is done. 
for you in regards to reconciling you to God. But now you live. And you live by his life. And he clothes himself with you. He will speak through your lips. He will walk through your feet. He will touch through your hands. And that's his life ministering through you. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says this. Faithful is he who has called you who will also do it. Who will do it? He will do it. He called you. He will do it. This is his life. This one who calls you lives that life of righteousness through you. This one ministers to the needs of humanity through you. It is this one who goes into the world and preaches through you. That's why Jesus tried to tell us, don't be afraid when you stand before even leaders wondering, what will I say in that moment? I will give it to you. But how many times have we shut the mouth of Jesus because we did not feel prepared to say something on his behalf? Open the mouth and let God fill it. He lives in you. Let him live. He lives in you. You know, this is so important, but live in that life. Letting Jesus, or our, our, Carla and I started the church, I think 35 years ago in September, and two years into this, um, so this was about 33 years ago, I was done as a pastor. I was totally done. I was tired I'm very competitive. I was living in my flesh. I was trying to be good for God. I wanted to be good for God. I wanted to be good for people. But I was doing everything that I could possibly do. From visiting people and going to hospitals and leading Bible studies and doing the, you know, because when you you start a church, you really do it all, right? We were doing everything. Going to nursing homes, going to prisons. I mean, it was just constant. And two years into this, I am wiped out. And I just prayed one day and I said, Lord, you, 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 you know, I, you just, I missed you. You got the wrong guy. I, I, I just can't do this. I don't want to do this. I'm done. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm frustrated. And, and I just, I'm sorry. I, I thought you called me, but I, I don't believe that you did. And it was in this two weeks of travailing with God about this to, to get out of the ministry That I came to Ezekiel 44 and God said this. He said, this is my desire of my ministers. And I'm thinking, okay, you've got my attention. Because I thought you called me to be your minister. And so maybe I'm doing this all wrong. So what is your desire? I thought these were your desires, everything I was doing. But in Ezekiel 44, he says around verse 16, he said, this is my desire that my ministers would approach my table and draw near to me and minister to me. And I never asked you to go to prisons, and I never asked you to visit people's homes, and I never asked you to go to hospitals, and I never asked you to do those things. As a matter of fact, if the sick get sick, they're supposed to call for you. You don't go hunt them down. I never asked you to do these things. never asked you to go to do this stuff. I want you to draw near to me and live in my presence and minister to me. You take care of me. And I said, God, that's a deal. I love that. And 33 years ago, I began to do that imperfectly. But his provision for my life, I've never run harder. I've never run more. I've never done more. But I have not burned out and I have not grown weary. We go every month. We're traveling, ministering here. 
My week is stacked up because I was gone for a week. My week is stacked up with meetings and appointments and and things, decisions that I have to come home and make. And all of these staff decisions that I have to hear from and talk about. And I've got all of this and we're running, we're preaching. I got to preach Wednesday night. I got two services today and I've got everything that's going on here. And, And yet people say, how are you doing? You're tired. I'm not tired at all. I'm ready to go. I'm just like, I couldn't wait for the clock to start again. Let's get back in the game and do this. I'm, I'm really, I don't understand, but God, I'm ministering to him. I'm not doing things because people are pulling at me to do things. I'm doing what I believe God wants me to do with him and to serve him and to minister to him. I'm not First New Testament church's preacher. I'm God's minister. I don't work for you. I serve God. And the Lord takes care of us. And, and you should want any preacher you ever have, pastor in this church, to be that way. Because the day that he serves you, he won't serve you long. He'll burn out. And he'll fail every one of you. You know? And all the knives he's going to get in his back, he's not going to be able to take it very long. But if you just serve God, the one you serve will never put a knife in your back. He will love you to the very end and be faithful to you to the very end. If we could know this truth, it would revolutionize our spiritual lives and our Christian lives. The desire to start ministry, the desire to do something for God, the desire to serve the Lord, the desire to pray, the desire to worship, the desire to really praise God without being affected by the fear of man is all in the life of Christ. And the only reason that is lacking in your life is there's too much of you limiting him. You know these things that God wants and you're trying to give it to him in your own effort and it will never be acceptable to God and it will never be satisfactory to you. And you look at the believers today working away, working in their own power, frustrated, trying harder, exhausted, weary, failing. But by his life we live and in that we have great relief. I don't have to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I've heard people say that all my life. I heard a preacher say that one time, just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I said, can I watch you do that? I would like to see that. I've never seen anybody do that before. What in the world does it mean? It is absolutely ridiculous, you know. And, and so if it were not for this divine provision, the call of Christ would be an utter source of frustration, wouldn't it? Knowing the task. Paul said, who is sufficient for these things that God has given us to do? Who's sufficient for that? Jesus wants me to go feed his lambs. Okay. How do you cook the first meal? These are his lambs. You want to give him the very best. You already know right off the bat. You got the wrong guy. But no, it's his life that is going to work through you to do this. And so I just call you to that so that you can live a life that is pleasant to the Lord and pleasant to yourself. Because it should be. Christianity should be pleasant if it's by his life. But if you're trying to give God what you heard that God wants out of yourself, you're miserable. And people around you are going to soon be miserable. And you're not going to have joy. And you're going to look a lot like a Pharisee. And you're going to be mad at other people that are not helping you because the load you're carrying is so difficult. No, Jesus said, come to me, all you that are weary. Learn of me. Take my yoke upon you. And you just join yourself to Jesus Christ and and you will do and run the race that God has given you to run by his life. And it will be absolutely supernatural. But here's the issue. People are typically alienated from the life of Christ. 
They're alienated from that life. And this is in Ephesians chapter 3 and 4. And I'm, I'm going to come back to this next week because I feel like if I tried to get into this, I'm going to rush it. And I don't want to rush this because it's so important. Because you have the faith. You have the faith that Jesus lives in you. But do you really have the faith that Jesus lives in you? I think you have, and I'm not saying, I I know I'm saying you, like I'm not pointing my finger at you people in this room, but I'm just saying it in general, you know. But today there's a definition of faith that is really not faith at all. And I've been teaching on this for the last few weeks about faith. And so do you really have faith that he lives in you? It is an amazing prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 that believers would know that Jesus indwells their hearts by faith. Why does he pray that for believers? Because Paul knew that believers do not know that. Paul knew that without the revelation and the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life, they're not going to know the indwelling Christ. They're going to believe in it, but they're not going to know him. Not like that. And I'm not saying you're lost and going to hell, but you're going to live an unprofitable life on earth. You're going to live a life in yourself, a life in your own power. But if in Ephesians chapter 3, the Holy Spirit can strengthen your inner man. Because it is in the strong inner man that the Holy Spirit is able to now reveal Christ to you. Then he dwells in your heart by faith. And you know what's happening? You're not learning things. You're experiencing things. You're not learning about a love that your mind cannot comprehend. You're experiencing a love that your mind cannot comprehend. It becomes the experience of your life and the testimony of your life. And I would rather know love and give love than to be able to perform a Bible study about love. I'd much rather know it. I'd much rather live it. Somebody comes around and says, that is the best teacher on love that I've ever heard in my life. And another person comes around and says, that is the greatest disciple of love I've ever met. Which one would you want to be? The great teacher of love or the great disciple of love? I'd rather live it than just be able to teach it. But a lot of Christians can talk about it, but they don't know it. The dwelling Christ is alienated from them. And he goes to that in chapter 4 of Ephesians. And so I just want to look at this in John chapter 6, and we're going to close here. But in John chapter 6, Jesus makes a remarkable statement that people have, I think people have stumbled over this, just not really understanding exactly what Jesus is saying here. In John chapter 6, Jesus does say some some really tough things here. And he says, and I just want you to read this with me. And we're going to start in verse 47. And he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread. He's speaking to thousands of people. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And the Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're just so carnal. 
And Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, I live by the Father. So he that eats me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eats of this bread shall live forever, forever. And they were confused by this, and multitudes would leave him because of these statements. And Jesus says in verse 61, does this offend you? And then he says this, and I think it is so important, in verse 63, it is the spirit that quickens, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And so I want you to understand this. this is, and we're going to come back to this. But a lot of people have misunderstood this. Religions have been built off of this. Um, there are those with the persuasion, um, even that, you know, in, in, in Catholic churches, so forth, that the, the, the wafer and the juice actually becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. And, and that, is, that, that has been taken from this passage totally out of context. Jesus is not being eternally sacrificed. He's not being eternally crucified, perpetually slain for the sins of our life, for the sins of the world. It was done once and for all. And Jesus said, I'm talking to you about spiritual words. These are spiritual things that I'm talking about. And Jesus says very clearly in this, and he said, and I just want you to see it again. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And, and it is important to Jesus that you take his life in you. It is important to Jesus that you eat his flesh and you drink his blood. This is a strange saying. I would probably say that you have been in church most all of your life and never really heard it taught or explained. But it's not something for us to be afraid of. And it's certainly not something that's difficult to understand. It's spiritual. And it is the spirit of the Lord and the life of Jesus. And if you will, his flesh is his humanity. It is to believe that God came in the flesh. It is to believe in this person that has walked among us in the flesh that is literally the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who somehow came as a man, and I believe him in the flesh, and I eat that. I take that into me, that I worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became a man. His flesh denotes that he is different from any other person that ever lived in this world. He is the unique, the one and only begotten Son of God. And I must believe that, eat that, take that into me. And drink his blood. And what is blood? The Bible says life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. And if these words are spiritual, it's not talking about literally drinking his blood or literally eating his flesh. But these words are spiritual. So what is he talking about? I'm talking about you drink in my life. And my spirit is life. 
And you drink into yourself my spirit. You take my spirit in you. I am wanting you to digest something into your very life. I'm not speaking flowery words of some type of revolution or movement that has come. Do you understand? I literally want to get inside of you and live through my spirit. And you must believe that I am the one unique Messiah of the world. And take that in like you would take nobody else into your life. Take me in like that. You eat that. You digest that. This bread from heaven. This manna. And you eat it. You get it in you. And that's the new birth. And that's being born again. And the purpose of all of that life coming in you now is so that you can live out from that life. You can live by that life. And oh, beloved, I just say this. Call if you want to come up. I just say this to you this morning. We love what Jesus did for us at the cross. We love it. We love it. And we've got so many things that go on, you know, about the cross, about the cross, about the cross, you know. And, and I've got no problem with that because I love it. But I, I don't want to get just stuck in the cross. I also want to be in the resurrection and I want to be in the ascension and I want to be in the enthronement of Jesus Christ. Because right now he's sitting at the throne of God. And it's not just the fact that everything is, is there. It's that whole life of Jesus. And if by his death through the cross we're reconciled to God, much more than being reconciled now, we are saved by his life. And that is something that is continually going on this very moment. And wherever you are, whatever condition you're in this morning, whatever it is, the, the life of Jesus wants to save you. The life of Jesus wants to save you. His life in you. If you, would, if you would turn that life loose, that life would save you. That life would heal you. That life would bring you victory from your grief and from your despondency. The life of Jesus would save you. The life of Jesus would be in this altar shouting and lifting their hands up to God and dancing and praising God with all. The life of Jesus will. Your life won't. The life of Jesus will. And I just pray that today we let that life save us. Whatever it is that we're dealing with. And so for you as a Christian, you've been saved. But you're being saved. And you're not just, and I don't mean that just in the sense of sanctification. I just mean that in the sense of oppression against your life, whatever it might be. Maybe you're at a great time in your life, a great place in your life. Well, it's the life of Jesus that will let you get all of the joy of it. You're just getting a little bit of the joy. The life of Jesus will get all of the joy out of it. You know, get all of the joy out of it. I love eating ice cream. I lick the bowl when it's gone. I want all of it. Every bit of it, you know. I don't want to leave anything. And so it's just like the life of Jesus will get all of the joy out of it. I thank you for being here today. And I just want to encourage you to give. Um, ushers are in the back and there'll be a little promo up on the screen if you want to give electronically. But y'all, you're the church and we need your help. We need you to be givers. We need you to help us do what God has called us to do in this earth. And let, let that life even help you to give. Father, I thank you this morning in Jesus' name. That by his death we've been reconciled to you. And that is just so fabulous and so tremendous, God. And Lord, now Jesus lives and he's ascended and he's at the right hand. 
And Father, by that life, we're saved. Save us now. You can save us by your life from temptation, troubles and trials. Thank you, Father, that you are the one who rules us and dictates our life and what we do and how we live, where we live, where we go, what we say, what we do. You dictate that. It's so wonderful to live by your life. Bless us this morning, Father. And I just ask you to sit before the Lord and just release that life. If you don't know how, just and I, I, we're going to come into this in our studies, but, but right now just ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. Because really that's the answer. Teach me how to live by His life. Teach me. I'm being overcome, not because you're failing me, but I need His life. To be real with me, I need to experience it. Not just acknowledge it in agreement that it's true. I need to experience it. Teach me, Holy Spirit. And if you ask him, he will. He loves you.